and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hey, hey, everyone. For all of those of you in Oz, isn't the weather starting to turn itself on? And this is the exact time to start to think about what movement you will do this spring. Dust off those shoes and let's make the tail end of 2023 one of feeling great and moving well. I know here at Altitude Fitness in Armadale, we have a six-week boot camp kicking off really soon on the 1st of September, and I bet your local gyms have something in the pipeline too. So after this pod, why don't you give them a call and find out? Here's a trick for you, something I've learned along the way in the 10 years I've worked in the fitness industry. Before you engage anyone, have a think about when you felt at your fittest and what was different in your life back then. When has your training been the most successful in the past and what were the key components? What I mean by that is, did you train at night? Did you train in the morning? Were you following a plan? Did you train for an event? Was it more about someone picking you up so you had that accountability piece or was it about the cohort and the crew that you were training with? All of these little components go into creating the perfect environment for you to train. So spend a little bit of time reflecting on your past and come up with a plan of attack that is just right for you this spring. So on to the pod. Today, I've invited the very articulate, passionate and strong young woman, Meg, on to have a very real and raw conversation. Heads up, both Meg and I are battling colds and you will really notice this in our voices throughout the whole episode. Our focus today shifts to a deeply personal story, one that resonates with countless individuals and families who have faced the complexities of mental health. We delve into Meg Southcombe's journey, a journey that takes us from the triumph feats of her father's past as an Ironman to the heart-wrenching moments that he found himself unable to rise off the couch. Meg's candid reflections highlight her initial lack of understanding surrounding mental health and she admits that she believed her father should simply get up without comprehending the depths of depression. The turning point for her arrives when her father, her closest confinement, bravely admits to battling depression and the agonizing truth that he needs to seek help from a psychiatric facility to save his life. She's such a remarkable young woman, and she is the ambassador for Where There Is A Will Foundation. She's also the former high school captain, and in 2022, she was awarded the Musselbrook Shire Council Citizen of the Year, and she is even a panellist on the esteemed ABC program, The Drum. Currently, she's pursuing a path of becoming a PDHPE teacher at Newcastle University, where she also proudly represents that institution as an ambassador. However, we do feel it's essential that we provide a trigger warning. Our conversation dives deep into the matters of depression and suicide. And if these are topics that are sensitive for you, we encourage you to skip this episode. Your well-being is paramount. If this content stirs any distress or if you simply want to talk to someone, 
please don't hesitate to reach out to a family member, a friend, or consider contacting Lifeline on 13 11 14. Thank you for joining us today. And let's get into this conversation today with the incredible young woman, Meg. Hi, Meg. Welcome to Challenges That Change Us. It's so lovely to have you on here today. Hi. Thank you for having me, Ali. It's really nice to be on. A bit nervous, first podcast, but I'm excited. I'm excited to share, I guess, my story, which will be great. Yes. And I, I can't wait. Oh, we're, just, we're both chatters though. So we'll have to, <laughs> I'm like, is an hour going to be long enough? I know. We'll have to control it. <laughs> Meg, I love to start every interview with asking our guests what animal best describes them and what is it about that animal? And what this does is it just helps us, the listeners and I just get to know you a little bit better and perhaps how other people might see you in the world. Okay. So I was thinking about it and I'd probably have to go the honeybee. And the only reason that is, is like, I'm always busy. And I know there's the saying like busy bee, but I'm also like very confident and an empathetic person. And I guess I'm always putting others before myself and active in the community. I'm also really physically active. I love exercising. So I guess when I looked at the honeybee and its kind of characteristics, I was like, damn, that really fits me to a T. It was kind of like reading like my own little biography that had been written (laughs) because it's about like they work in like a colony and they lead and they're all like, I guess, attributes that make me me. And yeah, it's really interesting to think of yourself as an edible, but I, I did and I was like, there we go, a honeybee. So I guess if I'm not at home here, I'm out and about somewhere doing something and normally with people. I like being surrounded with people all the time. So I guess that's why the honeybee fits me. And I was laughing so much because how we got in contact is there's a little bit of a story behind that, right? Yeah. <laughs> you work at a cafe and one of our listeners and a really dear friend of mine, Soph, a different Soph everyone to the last podcast a few ago because her name was Soph too, different Soph. Soph messages me and she's like, Oz, I just met this girl you are going to love her. You need to meet her. No context, didn't know anything about you. So I just reached out. I was like, hey, (laughs) do you want to catch up over Zoom? (laughs) And she met you at the coffee shop, right? Sure. And yeah, and everyone says that because like me at work is me in my element. Because I mean, while you've got to wait tables, I love being social. And I just said that like I'm bouncing around the walls. And I must have just, yeah, swung over. I got chatting, told her a bit about myself. And she was like, I've got this friend, Ali, I was like, tee you guys up and get you guys to catch up. And that's how it came. Like how, that's how it came to be. And all my coworkers like have the ongoing joke that like, oh, all you do is socialise and look at all these opportunities. But it's great. It's great. I love it. It's just good. And we didn't know at the time it was about the podcast. It was just you two need to meet. Like we're, yeah. you know, four or five hours apart. I didn't even know you had a podcast. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'll just get in contact with the, like Ali. And now it's like, oh, podcast, here we go. This is great. And the start of a long-term relationship, might I add. But that's right. <laughs> <laughs> today we're not talking about that. Today we are going to be sharing your story. And as you said, it's the first podcast and you're a little bit nervous. I think it's because I'm actually going to have to be vulnerable. And I've said to a lot of my friends, like, if I really want to get the most out of this and to get the most out of this for me is to help others around me, I am going to have to be really vulnerable because when you think about what makes me me and my story and my passion, it's actually shifted to my family, but it does actually flip back and impact me also. So yeah, I just, I know that if I want people to listen to this and appreciate it, 
and I need to be authentic for that to happen and be vulnerable, which is something I, I do struggle to do because I'm very good at putting my walls up. So, yeah, I'm ready to be vulnerable. And I think we're going to hear that when we talk about you at school. And so maybe the place to start is at the beginning, you know, taking us back to the beginning where this all began and what life was like for you then and then what happened next. So when you hear about Musselbrook or the Upper Hunter, so that's where I grew up, very small area, everyone knows everyone. So my mum and dad met in high school and they were high school sweethearts. So it it goes back to like when they were teenagers, you know, and then their parents grew up in Musselbrook. So we were pretty well known. The Southcombe last name was well known in the area. And when you looked at my family, we had it all. I don't say that in a fact that we're better, but we we had, you know, a nice house. My parents had really good financially stable jobs. I had a brother. We were like a pigeon pair this gorgeous family dog. We were really active, like everyone in my family exercises every day. Yeah, and then my dad got sick and that just didn't sit well with me. I just remember so vividly the day he told us. When I say I remember vividly, I remember kind of what happened before he said the words, I have depression and I'm sick and it's been clinically diagnosed. And then after he said that, it just like, I just like blocked everything out. I was like, I was so, I mean, selfish to the point where I just sat there and I was like, this can't happen to my family. Like, this isn't real. This isn't happening. No, no, it's no. And I just blocked it out. And all of a sudden I was just running from it to the point where I wouldn't want to go home. Like I wouldn't want to get on the school bus I remember, you know how like most kids look forward to like walking out of school and getting on the school bus. My deputy principal, he would always put us on the buses and I just remember walking out and everyone would be so happy and I'd be like, God, no, God, no, God, no, I don't want to go home because I knew that then I would see dad in a state that I didn't want to see him, especially when he's your role model and he's my hero and, you know, I want to be like him and going home and seeing the way he was, it just, yeah, it broke me. It broke me a lot. And you mentioned that, you know, there's that day that you remember, the day that the conversation was first had with you around the depression, but what did it look like and what was your experience leading up to that day? It was a compile group of things that was just, I would call crap things that just kept happening and happening. So unfortunately, one of my dad's mates actually took his own life Um, So that in itself, when you're talking a small community, has just an enormous impact on work, community, social community, your sport community and households. So that happened and then my nan got really sick to the point where we basically got off a plane from Japan. You know, like I said, this perfect family, we'd been over there. My brother was representing Australia in soccer and we got landed and got told, like, get to the John Hunter they think like my dad's mum was going to die. So then we go there and I think it was kind of just all that stuff that like, holy crap, life really is so short and, you know, we get old and we lose people or we don't even get the chance to get old. Like his mate was young and it just really showed him and I guess it scared him of what the possibilities are of life. It wasn't like I got home and all of a sudden he was like not himself. It was like a lead up to things it'd start with like, he slowly stopped exercising. 
he would exercise. He was like, he's an Ironman athlete. Like he trained all the time and he was doing nothing, like nothing. Wouldn't even walk, go for a walk or anything. And I was like, oh, something's off here. Then started not going to work. And I was like, oh, so he's not exercising. He's not going to work. He must just be like doing things around the house. Then it got to the point where he would lay on the lounge all day. And part of me just wanted to go up and say to him and don't, like, it was so, it was so wrong of me to think, but like, just get up, get up, come on, you're fine. I mean, that's like telling someone with a broken leg, like, come on, just run. And I think it was because I was so young and I had no real understanding of what he was going through and no one had really spoke about it too much before. I was basically like, this is just, this is just bullshit. Like, it's not actually nothing's wrong. You're fine. Like, look how fit, active, healthy you are. Look at your beautiful family. Look how nice we live our lifestyle. And here you are moping around like on the lounge. And that was because I had no understanding of what it really, what was really happening until like he told us. Yeah. And like I said, that day is so vivid. I remember my brother and I got off the school bus. Him and I are really close now, my brother, after everything we've been through. And I walked into the kitchen and mum and dad were on in the kitchen and we were on the bench side and they like sat us down and dad had his wedding ring on, which he never wore ever. And he was like spitting it around and he was like, yeah, I've got something to tell you guys. And Will and I kind of knew, but we didn't expect it to be the point like I've got depression and I'm going to have to go into like a mental psychiatric hospital. And we didn't really understood understand sorry what that meant, but that meant he wouldn't be at home for a while. That's when we were like, this is serious. And the scary thing is with this, we're saying depression, but he, he wanted to like kill himself. And that's your best friend. Like my dad and I are so close. And that is what scared me the most. Like I could go to school and come home and he could be dead or I could, you know, go to netball and he could be dead. And it was just like horrifying because something that I guess in a kid's life it is, I don't want to put pressure on parents by saying this, but stable, a structure that is always there for them, a role model, it can be gone like that. And it was not due to like becoming sick with something contagious or any type of event, it was because he was struggling himself. And, yeah, so it was just, yeah, very sad time, yeah. What happened next? Next kind of was just months and months of hiding it. So I, like I said earlier, I didn't want to believe it. So I thought the best way for me to cope would be to tell everyone it was fine, to tell everyone nothing was wrong and just pretend that what happened in my home, that was separate to everything else. Like I vividly remember going down to Newcastle because dad was in a hospital in Newcastle. We lived in Musselbrook and I'd organised to catch up with a friend and she, her family were at the shops and I was like, oh, that works so well. Like I'm down in Newcastle that day too. Mum will just drop me off at Katara and then I'll like come home with your family for the night. And then I remember she was like, oh, what have you been up to today? And I was like, I just went out for lunch with my family. I actually went down and picked my dad up out of hospital and took him out for lunch for the day. But 
then she was like, oh, well, where's your mum and dad? Like, where's your dad now? Like, your mum's here. I said, oh, like, dad's just at a shop. Like, he's at the surf shop just having a look. And I, I still remember that. So naive my friends were. They were like, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. And that whole thing went on for the whole course. So for the, the month when it was really rough, no one really knew. No teacher at school knew. And that is so bad. I'm becoming a teacher. If you, as a student, are emotionally or socially distressed, holy crap, talk to a teacher. Talk to an adult who can support you. But I had this idea in my head, which was a load of crap once again, that if I tell people that I'm under emotional distress, they're going to think, oh, well, Meg's not actually capable of doing this at school or, you know, we won't give her that extra responsibility. And I knew like from the moment I went to Joey's, I was like, I want to be school captain in this place. So I always had that. I put that pressure on myself to be like, I have to be the best. And by having someone in your family who is sick, that makes you not the best. So I didn't tell anyone. Not even your friends? No, I didn't tell anyone until year 12, maybe. Yeah. Starting year 12. Yeah. So that's three years. Yeah. No one really knew. My neighbours knew, so our neighbours two doors up, they're really good friends with mum and dad. They knew. My grandparents knew. That's it. That is it. No one else. No one knew. And I'm hearing it was really coming from within you. That wasn't necessarily pressure placed on you from external sources. That was you placing that pressure on yourself. And you use the language that if something is wrong with someone in the family, then that's going to change my world as well. And that I don't want people to know that because they're going to stop giving me opportunities. People are going to judge. Is that how it was? Yeah. And that's how I took it. So then I was obviously coping with a lot of the stress by myself, which it's so silly because you get told now if something's wrong, reach out. And and I know that now, like I've, I work really closely with like where there's a will and we basically implement in schools to teach kids coping methods for where this happens. So ironically enough, um, when, where there's a will in year nine or no, it's year 10, year 10, they do mental health first aid training, which is where they teach you if someone like is sick or like not well mentally, like how do you respond? And I remember sitting there and, you know, everyone was like, oh yeah, like this is a great idea or blah, blah. And I'm just sitting there and I was like, I've literally lived this and no one knows. Like, cause it was really interesting. Like I'd put my hand up and someone would be like, oh, can you spot the sides of like, depression and I just go bang, 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 bang. But because I was that like smart girl who like knew a lot and had a head screwed on, people just thought I was like engaged in the session. And then that's when Pauline, the lady who runs where there's a will, she was like, holy crap. Like no one had any idea, did they? I said, no, people just thought I was engaged in the session. And at the end of the day, I just lived it like 12 months ago. And I'm so angry at myself now for actually not talking about it. I mean, I, I have now, I have down the track and we're slowly making a difference, but I'm like, holy dooly, like I could have done this a lot earlier. But then I also do think like I needed the time to process it because it's not something that it's been done and over. Like your mental health for everyone is on a continuum and it's continually going like up and down. So I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to understand that like it can happen again, 
but now I feel like I have that ability to open up, talk to people, be honest, vulnerable. Just recently, my parents bought a house down in Newcastle and obviously that comes with a lot of financial stress and dad had like a bit of a breakdown and that's when it all started like I would say crap started to hit the fan again. And I would normally not tell people, but I messaged two of my closest mates and I was like, dad's not well. It's like really like everyone's stressed, everyone's freaking out and I'm now upset. So it's really interesting now that I've been through it properly once and that was not the correct way to cope that I now know like this is how I need to cope. I didn't talk to people. When you think back over the last few years, what did the hard days look like? When you think about the really challenging moments, what were they like? They were like, I actually think a hard day for us, which sounds like I really remember this day because it wasn't that long ago when we shared our story and we like told everyone what was going on. That was a pretty big deal because it was like in the Upper Hunter. And I remember when the lady from scode.com, it was like an article page, had kind of read this research piece I'd written and contacted me. I was like, oh, like this can go one of two ways. Like she's going to post it and people will go, yeah, cool, whatever, or it's going to go viral. Like everyone is going to know that what the Southcombs have been through. And I remember I was at school, this article must have got posted at about like 11.30 and I actually had to leave school because my phone like just wouldn't stop and I was like, holy crap, like this has just gone insane. I think it got like nearly like 50 shares and like it, like just off this article on Facebook they posted it on. And then it was really funny, like when I look back to that day, we really should have celebrated as a family but... I walked into the living room and, you know, mum and dad are there and Will. And I was like, oh, how was everyone's day? What did you get up to? Just We just completely ignored the fact that we'd, like, shared our story because it was hard for us to come to terms with. Probably everyone in the Upper Hunter is talking about us right now over dinner and we're just going to pretend that that's not actually happening. And then I must have been going to bed that night and that's when dad came in and he's like, thank you for talking to me because he actually didn't want to tell people. And that was a hard conversation we had to the point where I think we were just both in tears because we were like, holy dooly, we've helped so many people, but to help them, we had to go through something that we never want people to go through. And then like, obviously some of the other hard days is just seeing them upset and stressed. Like when he was really sick before he went into hospital, like he, it just thought he was going like insane. And that was because he also had no concept of what was going on. So it was really interesting being like, crap, like why am I so stressed? Why am I so tired? Why aren't I sleeping? Like if I'm tired, shouldn't I be able to sleep? But I'm stressed, so then I can't sleep. And then when I'm sleeping, I'm having nightmares and it's like, holy crap. And, you know, and, you know some of these hard days were like, I'd wake up at 3am, the sensor light would come on and dad would be out lying on the back lawn looking up at the stars. And I was like, holy crap, is this it? Like, is this tonight? Like, what's going to happen? And then you just think, like, we haven't really spoke about her much, but my mum, like, my dad is going through all this, not working. My mum still was working a full-time job. She's like such a shaker and mover. 
and she was working six o'clock in the morning till four in the afternoon, driving down to Newcastle three times a week to my brother's training because he plays down in a Newcastle soccer club. She also had me to worry about and then also travelling to see my dad on top of that. So, like, that's where we have this whole conversation. Like, if she's doing all that, also trying to um, self-regulate all her emotions, where does she actually do stuff she enjoys? She doesn't. Like, she, yeah, she just sacrificed all her time. Yeah. When you were talking then about your dad out on the lawn, I think that's something that's not spoken about a lot, but that fear of is this the last time I'm going to see them, you know, living with that fear is huge. Yeah, and that's what I said before. Like my dad and I are joined at the hip. So my brother and my mum are very similar. We would fight and we would always butt heads when I was younger and everyone would say, it's because you're so alike. And I was like, no, we're not. Like, you know, I was a a young 12-year-old who was like, no, he's just cranky, he's horrible. But it was. We're so alike that we just would clash heads. And now I can say that, like, he is, like, my best mate. We send each other Instagram reels every day and, you know, like, motivational stuff. We're always chatting. Um, And I know that if something's wrong, I'd probably go and talk to him and he'd be able to give me some words of advice. Like, he's just in my corner, which is good to know. And it's scary knowing you can lose someone, like I said before, not from a terminal, like, illness or sickness or a car crash or a natural disaster like you lose them because our inability as humans is to not open up about stuff like that and just shut down so it's it's definitely preventable and I guess that's why I keep talking and keep sharing my story but this is why I share but now that I'm kind of in the position where it's been years since this has happened I actually when I talk at events now don't actually share my story because I'm like oh I don't want to come to this event and be like a Debbie Downer and like sad, I'm actually going to give people a conversation about what we are going to do in the future because I'm becoming a teacher. It kind of like lines up, but I definitely think using this podcast and our conversation to kind of get that understanding to the listeners about why I do what I do. And this is the first time I've kind of actually spoke about it. Like this, this is why I do it. Yeah. And now like when I go to events, I try and focus on like a positive shift to what we can achieve yeah we will also have a bit of a conversation about that as well because I know how important that is to yes me, how much <laughs> value that I guess I'm wondering some of the language like what were some of the conversations you had in your head at that time with yourself with myself I just thought like I just thought things would never be the same and like I said like I would just I would run I'd like run from the problem which didn't achieve anything Like I thought it was achieving lots, you know, this mentality, like out of sight, out of mind, that, that, that was how I took the approach, which is so selfish. And I look back and I'm like, I was a selfish bitch. Like there's nothing else I could say. So when dad was really sick and this is something we don't tell many people to the point where I was at a charity ball and my CAFS teacher who that was the class I wrote the project in he was sitting next to me and he's like wow like Meg like that project you wrote has really like changed so much and I was like yeah it has and he was like so when did it all kind of happen and I was like oh a bit before you came to school that's when dad got sick and blah 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 and I said do you want to know, like, if I'm really honest with you, I said, 
to the point where dad was really sick. I said, my brother had to have days off school to look after him. And I said, I would never do it because it really upset me and made me feel emotionally stressed seeing him like that. So I would always be the first to like pack my lunchbox, pack my bag. I would hundred percent on a Friday pack an overnight bag because I would, I was not coming home. I was like, I'm getting on a bus and I'm going to my best mate's house or I'm going to the league tag and I'll go to someone's house beforehand. And then hopefully by the time I get home, everyone's in bed. Sweet. <laughs> Haven't seen it. I have not seen it for the day, which means out of sight, out of mind. So my brother was 13 at the time. So what's that year eight or year seven? But I'm pretty sure he was year eight. And yeah, he would have days off and people would ask like, where's your brother? And I'd be like, he just has a migraine. So it was the ongoing lies. Like that's what gets me. I'm not like a liar. Like I don't lie to people today, but like the ongoing lies to try and paint this picture perfect life because I was embarrassed by it. And hindsight's a beautiful thing. I go, what the hell were you thinking? But at the time I was thinking I have to be perfect. And you don't, you don't. Like our imperfections make us perfect and unique in our own way. And for some reason, I'm not sure if it was because I lived in a small community where everyone knew everything, but I guess I'd seen the impact suicide had had on people. And I was like, I can't be associated with a negative thing because I'm a honeybee, remember? I'm positive and I'm a leader and I'm a go-getter and I'm a chaser. And as soon as someone's like, her dad has depression and her dad's actually not living at home, people start to go, oh, well, is she really? Is she? And that is the thought I had through my head, thick and thick as anything the whole time. I was like, blinkers were on. I was fine in public. No one needed to know anything else that was going on. But as soon as I guess I got home, I was just like, I felt trapped in what was something that was, I guess, we're never going to escape unless dad did get the help and the ability now to talk about it. I feel so much open, honest and vulnerable. Like I'm I'm really opening up because yeah, you have to, or otherwise people just won't understand. And I think by having that idealistic lifestyle that I had when I was at home, a lot of people could see that and go, oh, well, I'm just like her and someone in my family's sick or my friend has depression, so I guess I can associate myself with it and still everything will work out fine because it did. Everything worked out just fine. I guess I'm wondering when it all changed for you because it sounds quite distinct, the two versions, you know, that I don't want anyone to know what's going on in my world. Yeah. How I present to the world is perfect. It's getting things done. I don't want them to judge. You know, that's we've really heard that part. But the girl that I met the other day is like, <laughs> here it is, you know, this is me. Yeah. So and I and I've heard you say on repeat through this interview around how different it is for you now that you speak about it. But I guess how did you morph? So I started year nine with where there's a will and they are a non-for-profit like charity organization that basically looks at well-being. I, I would say mental health, but basically well-being as a whole, because like I said before, it's on that spectrum and continuum. So it's basically getting into schools from, they work with students aged two to 18 years 
and they get them to start to recognize, I guess, well-being and what it is and why it's important and how to self-regulate and understand your emotions. And because I think what happens a lot is people get sad. They don't actually want to recognize that or self-regulate that. And then it's just a constant feeling that occurs. But like, I know now when I get sad, this is through the work with Weathers Will, I go, I'm just sad. And I feel like this for this small second, but hold on, there's so many other traits and emotions I have felt today that make me, me, that I go, oh, like, you know, you're allowed to feel sad. And I think that's the important thing. I acknowledge that. Like I acknowledge it. I will, I'll say to a friend, I feel sad. Like I, I felt sad yesterday and it's, it's given me the confidence to go. If I voice that to someone, they're actually not going to go, well, now because you're sad, you're miserable, horrible, and you know, fun to be around. It's like, okay, well, we understand Meg can actually acknowledge how she feels. We can self-regulate. We can talk about our emotions and then we move on. So I guess it's pretty much about giving students the approach that what actually is well-being, I mean, that's so important because it's not actually spoken about. I'm becoming a PE teacher. So hard to find it in the K to 10 syllabus, which is when you need to be hitting it. Like adolescence is a crazy time when, you know, you've got teenagers trying to understand who they are and who they're becoming and I guess what impacts that. And like in schools, you actually don't specifically have to talk about it. Like I did an assessment last year on mental health and I remember saying to my tutor, where do I find this stuff? Like where where in the syllabus does it say well-being? She's like, oh, just find a dot point and blabber on. If teachers aren't doing that, it's not going to be addressed. So that's where Where There's a Will fills the gap. Where There's a Will got really big and I started to notice they would do like charity rounds. So that is where the footy boys would wear like rainbow socks and it was like mental health round. The pits out in the coal mines, they actually got like a big bucket put on one of the lines that had like the Where There's a Will tree on it and their logo. And Pauline started going into the coal mines and giving talks. And my dad was lucky enough to sit through one of them. And her story is very sad. And, you know, it's not my story to tell, but her son took his own life and that's why she started the organisation. And the way she spoke about it and so articulate, so passionate, I think it caught dad's attention. And I remember he came home and he was like, oh, you know, Pauline spoke, blah, blah. And at this time, I didn't have that relationship with the organisation. Like, Pauline did not even know who I was. Like, no idea. I was just this random girl tagging along to, like, leadership summits and with all the other hundreds of students. So then I started to go to these, like, leadership summits and then, like, they'd get me on the radio. They'd be like, because I was that confident person who, you know, my just personality would just burst out. They're like, get her on, Meg, go and talk. So then I'd be like talking about, oh, why youth leadership's really important and like why well-being is really important. And I was like starting to get really good feedback and I was like, okay, so me talking about things really makes a difference. Like people actually listen. If a young person talks, we listen because it's like that's so exciting that young people are in touch with what's going on because we're the future. And then I got to... I guess year 11 and year 10 was not a good experience in the sense that one of the boys we went to school with, his brother took his own life. That's what I went, holy shit. I was like, 
what is going on? Like, I was like, you know, this boy was like, how old was he? Might've been like 20, 20, 21. He was like so young. And I saw how that impacted the boys in my year group. I was dating a boy at the time. I was actually in a relationship with one of the boys and him and I are still really close to this day. And he cried and I couldn't believe it because of the impact that it had. And that's when I was like, holy shit, this doesn't just impact one person. It impacts everyone. And that's what I thought of my story. And I was like, how can I make a difference? Because like I said, I'm empathetic. Like I like helping people. I like to be a leader. I was like, Meg, something has to shift in order for there to be change to occur. Like something has to give. And I was like, look, if it's me sharing my story and that helps and that gives people a sense of understanding to we can get through this, you know, because my story is it's positive. My story is you get help. You know, dad got help, dad got looked after, and then he was okay. So that is why I want to share the story. It's the fact that if you do get support, there can be light at the end of the tunnel. And then I, yeah, started, I guess, with my research project, which wasn't really verbalizing it, but it was writing a story based on a true story of a family called the Green Family. If you Google my name, it's like the first hyperlink that comes up. It takes you through like our little article and then the story is attached at the bottom. But basically for everyone, it was just written on a family I'd interviewed because confidentiality, I changed the last name to Green and then all the interviews were just like interviewee, interviewer. And so no one knew who I was talking to. I actually don't know where people thought because we worked on this piece for 12, 13 weeks. I honestly can't remember what crap I would have told people. It would have been something, but it was like lies again that I was, you know, interviewing just this family and I just didn't tell anyone. And then I, yeah, pulled it out at the end of the term and it got published in the school library and people were like, wow this sounds a lot like your family. And I was like, oh, that's funny. I was like, I don't actually know if it is or not. And then that's when I was like, okay, dad, we have the opportunity here. Like I said, you see how much of an impact Pauline has when she speaks. I said, we could do just the same. We've just got to share it. So I guess that's why, that's why I got, I had to get his permission because it was him that went through it and it's his It's something that is so, I guess, intertwined into who makes, like it makes him him and his story and his experience. It's not mine to go and prance around on stage or at an event and share. So I just wanted to check with him and it actually was a two-week thing that he had to think about. It's a lot of secrets and things for people to know and it's out there for anyone to know. So that is, I guess, how it all came to be. And when you said about it's out there for people to know, the other words that you used was he got help and, you know, he started to get better. I'd imagine that's a lot of pressure that comes with that though. Yeah, there is because then I feel like people always tiptoe around it when they ask about dad. So after I finished the HSC, I like worked at home before I moved down to Newcastle for uni. And I always found people would tiptoe around it because he had like gotten better. It was like, oh, so like, how's your dad now? Like they would literally say it like that. And I'd be like, oh, he's fine. And like, he's okay. Like he's getting help. He's still medicated. And I think those conversations in themselves, people went, 
oh, she talks about it, like, so openly. And I was like, well, when you break your leg, like, I guess you don't hide it either. It's just the same. So when I, when we really, like, once we knew it was out there for people to know, we were like, we're just going to shift the whole way we talk about this to people. And then dad's had to too. Like, this was, like, a couple weeks ago I went home and my dad was, like, in the kitchen and we, you know, joking around, like, him and I trying to cook. And mum was somewhere, it was just him and I, and he's like, Meg, I need to tell you something. And I was like, okay. He's like, one of my mates, he's been going through a really rough patch with his mental health. And for some reason, don't know why, he Googled your name. And I was like, yeah, dad, like that makes sense. Like a lot of people know in the area that I like do mental health stuff. And he's like, yeah, besides the point, Meg, but the point is he clicked on the link and went to the scode.com article and read your project. And he came to work and told me, thank you so much. That helped me on one of the toughest nights. That is when I went that this is why I do what I do. Not to try and give false hope or like I can sit here and go, oh, yay, you know, what will be will be and the sun will come up tomorrow. And But uh, it's like this is the impact it can have. Like this is a true to the fact story And I guess we are physical human beings that people in the Hunter see and know. He was probably reading it going, holy crap, like, and I'm going to see this guy at work tomorrow and he's fine and he's breathing. So I guess that is why we shared it and why it's, it's still having this like ongoing impact. And it's been years now, like I'm second year uni and I'm still going home and people are pulling it up. So that's why it's out there. That is why it was published. That is why it's on the internet. And I know that it's helped people who I don't even know. And that is where I'm like, okay, something is happening. Something is being done right, which is good. It's really interesting. Like I didn't know the story would get that much attention because as humans, we have a negative bias. So obviously like when you say someone's sick, oh my God, are they going to die? That's like, you don't, you don't go as a human. Oh, so what's the, what's the survival chance you go oh they're gonna die that's the first thing you say and I thought oh like will people actually benefit from this because bad things happen but nothing substantially to the point where my dad took his own life that didn't happen but I think it had the positive impact because people were like oh my god there's a there's a way out like there is a way out so that is why that is why it's out there because it's for people like that guy my dad's friends with who is having probably one of the crappest days of his life to go, if I talk to someone, and he did, he spoke to my dad. If I can talk to someone, vocalize how I'm feeling, we can get out. We can, we can escape it. We can get help and take, it, I guess, it down the right journey and path, which is why he did it. It's that hope, isn't it? Yeah, hope. That's exactly what it is, that things will get better. And like I said before, I guess it's the impact it had that, like, things can get better. You've just got to know, I guess, where to get that support from. So that is why I now do all this work, I guess, try to shift perspectives still because sometimes I still struggle with communicating about it. I had a hiccup in high school. I was school captain at the time. People were aware of what was going on because I was in year 12, like the article had been published. And I was sitting in with the head of the Maitland Newcastle Diocese Bishop. So he had come up to have a luncheon with the school captains. And I remember, you know, I'm sitting there like eating my chicken sandwich and, you know, I'm thinking like, 
I'm a young person. I'm going to voice my opinion. He's a man in power. He should back us because he should be super happy that young people are having these insightful thoughts. And I was like, yeah, like I really think like if we do like a fundraiser or something, we should maybe try and inject it back into our community. Like we want to know the money's coming back to us. Why don't we support where there's a will? Like they do great work. This guy, this gentleman just looks at me older. But Meg, don't you just think like mental health is just all up in people's heads? So I just went, right. And I remember I got up and I left and I walked out because I was like, I'm going to say something I shouldn't say. And I am so hot-headed. I know I am. So I was like, I've got to breathe. I've got to calm down. And I was like, I walked into one of my coordinator's offices and I was like, what? I said, that's the problem. That is the problem. We get two steps forward and we have to take three back because someone says something like that and people listen to him because he has more of a name and a reputation than me. Like, who am I compared to him? Some random 19-year-old school captain who he's doing his little lunch rounds with at all the schools from Maitland to Newcastle. He'll forget about me tomorrow. But I said, what he has just said will stick with me. That will stick with me and that is why I am so passionate and I'm like, you know what, if I can prove you wrong and show the importance of it and I guess the impact it can have, like he obviously works for an educational institute. So for him to have success, he wants, you know, students that learn well, think well, creative, feel safe, feel supported. Well, I'm sorry, if you're addressing well-being in schools, that is all going to be ticked because students will feel safe, supported, emotionally and socially. If they're feeling all of that, then they're likely to apply themselves better to things they're doing. They'll find their passions. They'll pursue them. They'll feel more comfortable to have conversations and go, well, I'm feeling like this, but blah, 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 and this is the reason why. Not this whole, yeah, no. Like, can you imagine if you went to a teacher, like, it's just in your head, babe. I was like, this is why it has to change. Mm, absolutely. And such a powerful example as well. Yeah. You mentioned it's really important for you that people know where to go to get support. Yeah. What were those steps? Like when you say that, what do those words translate to? It's about like everyone has like Beyond Blue and Lifeline. Like you can look up those numbers. But that is treatment, right? That is like like if you're calling them, that is like your worst day and you're like, I need help. Luckily, dad went through the doctor. So, and he sees a psychologist like still really regularly, which is good. We're super happy with that. But I mean... I'm talking from the perspective of getting help as a family member. Don't do what I did. Don't try and be the hero. Don't be the hero. Be the person that goes and talks to people. That That is first and foremost your front line of defense and support that you can help yourself through this time. Go and talk to people. Let them know how you're feeling. Let them know that, okay, I might not be myself. And their response will probably be, how can I be there for you? Be honest, tell them, be like, okay, well, like really stressed. I probably won't have time. Like my mom, my grandma cooked us meals. Like she knew what was going on. That's my mom's mom. She cooked us meals because mom was like, I I don't have time to cook. I'm too stressed. I've got this, this, this on. Like simple things like that. Stupidly, I should have spoke to teachers at school because I'm going through school, you know, deadlines, assessments. I, I should have said, this is going on can I please have like a leeway or can I please have an extension? But I did it. And it's, I'm so glad now that I'm at university. It's been now like what, 2018, 19, 
2021 to It's been five years since our family's gone through what we went through. And you can now get an exemption for mental health and well-being. And that makes me so happy. And it makes it, I guess, I guess it's there. But my job now is by sharing our story is to actually get people to like apply for that, apply for that extension because they're going, okay, I'm not well, or I have someone in my family who's not well. And that impacts you just as much. Like it's, it's so tiring because you're stressed all the time. So support is reaching out. Support is getting in contact with your GP. Like they know you, they, my GP luckily enough had been seeing us since we were born. So really funny. She all knew us and she knew straight away if any of the Southcombs called up, they must've had it noted on the computer, get them an appointment. Like, she'd be booked out for months and I could happily ring up and see her in two days time or a day because she's like, if there's calling, something's wrong. So get in contact with a health professional. Don't try and self-diagnose yourself. Don't try and find hope in my story. You have to seek the help. You have to be willing to know that, okay, this is a blip. This is a little blip in my life. There is so much good that has come before. There is so much good that will come after. But the only way to get to that after bit is you've got to go through it. It's like talking about you're going on a bear hunt, can't go over it, can't go under it, have to go through it. You've got to go through it. You've got to have your support crew around you who are willing to help you through the waves. Because without that, like, we're humans. We like connections. We like relationships. That makes us us. And by God, is it lonely when you are in a state of, I guess, mental worry, depression, anxiety. So you need to have your support around you. And it's lonely enough for the family who decide not to talk about it also. And Meg, I know something that you're really passionate about and something that you talk to a lot is your life now and how it looks now and how you've grown as a person. Are you able to share that with us today? Yes, I am. So I recently moved to study. I'm becoming a school teacher, which is so exciting. Really, I'm so passionate about it. Like, don't even get me started. There's so much that has to change and I will change it slowly, slowly. And I've got to remind myself I'm only 19. When I think about moving, it was so good. I'm like, I live down here now. I've got all my sport. I was living a life again that I thought was perfect. And I found myself because I was so kind to everyone. I think that's because it's in my nature after what my family's gone through. I'm so kind and caring. I found myself in situations where I was being kind and caring to the point now where it actually wasn't having a positive impact back on me. And my friend and I were out walking a week ago and she showed me this photo and she was like, oh my God, Meg, like this time a year ago, like we were all out and like, look at this photo, blah, blah, blah. Now, because of what I have been through and my ability to self-regulate and talk about my emotions, like I just looked at her and I was like, I was miserable in that photo, Abby. And she was like, really? And I was like, yeah, I was pretending to be someone I didn't so I could fit in. And I said, because I wanted people to think I was enjoying myself and I was being, you know, perfect. I said, I was in like relationships with friends and partners and people who I would never associate with because I wanted to fit in. And I said to Abby, like, I was going through this stage where I was like, 
what is going on? Like, where where am I at now? Like, I'm doing all this mental health talking and advocating and telling people how to get in touch with how they're feeling and what they're doing, and I am so burnt out. I understand you can experience burnout out of all people. And I think what I said to her was, let's say you go to, like, Bunnings and you buy a plant, and I said, you know, plant the plant and you go to bed and you wake up the next morning and the plant's withered. You don't go to the plant and go, you are a very crap plant. You are horrible. You are hopeless. You go, oh my God, what do I have to change? Like, do I need to water it? Do I need to cut some dead leaves off? Do I need to put it in some light? What do I have to do to like to help this plant grow? It's that simple. And I, and I always say that to people. It's not actually us that's the problem and we always blame us why like we don't do it to a plant so why when we're feeling horrible and miserable do we blame us maybe have a look at your environment because I think where we go wrong is sometimes things have to change in your environment for change to actually occur and luckily enough like I last year like I said I was being someone that wasn't true to me and I, I really just want to say this on here because people think I have it all together because I'm very articulate. I talk on the news, you know, I've been through my journey with my family. So, you know, I've got it all together and I know how to handle all these situations in life. I'm 19. I, I don't. And I guess I was burnt out. I was doing things that didn't spark enjoyment or happiness. And I think it was the night that I just locked myself in the bathroom and cried and I was like, I am so miserable. And I was like, and I'm doing nothing to help myself. Like I'm doing absolutely nothing. And I was like, if I just keep going like this, I'm just going to keep pushing people away. Like I just turned into this monster who was so headstrong in like, I don't need anyone because, you know, I talk about all this stuff. I should be fine. And then I actually came to realisation that I was like, I actually need to cut some people out of my life and I need to spend more time focusing on other things and I need to stop worrying about what people think. And if I don't want to go out and go to that party, I don't have to. And if I want to play sport, if I want to do this and that, I do what I want to do. And I think that's what I, I try to say to people, find what you're passionate about. And that's why I'm becoming a teacher because I'm, I'm not there to get kids 90 ATARs. You're kidding if you think if any teacher walks into a room and goes, I'm gonna get this whole class 90 ATARs, I'm sorry you've got it wrong. What you should be saying is, I'm here to support kids to do their best. And if your best is 50 and you should have probably got 30, how good's that? So I went, I, I took that to myself and I was like, Meg, you've just got to do your best. And now I'm feeling more myself than ever. And I'm going to Melbourne to speak on a panel and I'm doing lots on the news and I'm doing things like this. Like I'm talking on a podcast and being like, yeah, well, it's not all squeaky clean and perfect as people think. You're allowed to just, I guess, embrace all the emotions that come because it's a ride, it's a journey. And yeah, from my own experience just recently, it can definitely nip you in the butt. But I mean, I talk to people about it now. Like I said, when it got stressful, I let on Abby and I let on Colby and my parents. My parents always know what I'm up to. I have an amazing running coach and the way they know is if I miss training, he'll tell them because I've slept in and he goes, she's got a bit on and that's all it takes. And the guys that wear there's a will because obviously I'm a uni student and it's still got a lot on, they also do the same thing. They're like, oh, well, Meg's got a lot on. Sarah and Michael, that's my mum and dad, like 
is there anything we can do or should we stop loading stuff on her? So, yeah, just be in check with how you're feeling. That's my big thing. If you now think back through these last five years, even last 10 years really, like even before everything started to happen, what's your go-to mantras now? So my dad and I were pretty like, so we're pretty close. So we did this Ben Crow like mojo, like we did like this type of training thing with him and we actually had to sit down and write things. But I always say to myself like this is so like typical, but win the morning, win the day. So I am very well aware I have to um, do something for myself every morning to set myself up for a good day. I am a big believer in that. My thing is exercise. People go, you're stupid. You get up and you're out running 10Ks at 5 o'clock in the morning. Sorry, that is me time. That is I like put a podcast in, I put music in, I zone out. So I'm always like with the morning, with the day, you've got this. Like how many times like crap hits the fan, you're like, you go, oh, my God, like a car. No, you've got it. I always say that. And even when I would coach under sixes, they would fall over and the first thing the parents would want to do is like, no, 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 pick them up. You've got it. You've got it. Keep going. Keep going. Come on. Like we don't have time to think about the bad things. We'll worry about that. But right now you can do it. You can keep going. Because like I said, we're the only species with this thing called an imagination above our head and that normally tends to go to negative bias. So if we can keep things positive, and that's where I'm always like, look for the positives. Like, you know, my dad got sick. The actual positive out of all this, we are so close as a family now. There's there's one positive. Like I always try to find the positives. So I'm like, with the morning, with the day, you've got this. And I, you, you hear me say it. And I, I actually have noticed it with my friend she said something the other day and she's like, yeah, but the positives are, and I was like, yes, I said, I've rubbed off on you. Like if you can find the positives in that situation, I'm so happy for you. And I guess also reminding yourself that everything happens for a reason and things come and go and things change at the end of the day. So I mean, in that split second, when you wake up to all the listeners, to anyone tomorrow morning, when you wake up, you know, you're still half asleep and you're like, oh, should I get out of bed or what should I do? Just go with the morning, with the day. If I'm getting up and I'm setting my foot on the right foot forward, I'm going to have a good day. And and you do, you like, you know, get up, exercise, do whatever, come home, have brekkie. And I'm like, I'm set, like I'm set for a productive day. So that's my, that's my little thing I do. Meg, there's going to be so many listeners that want to find you that are listening to this and they're like, how do I hear more from her? How do I find out more from her? Or how do I read about it? Like, where do they go? I know this sounds so random and a weird thing to say about yourself, but normally people come into work and recognize me from my appearances on the drum on the ABC and I'll be running around and I'm like, just Google me, just Google me. It'll come up. So If you Google Meg Southcombe on just like Chrome or Google search, my LinkedIn comes up. So I've got LinkedIn and I would probably say that is where things are like really professional and definitely I guess I put up some of my work. My actual articles published on my LinkedIn. But I mean, if you really want to get into the archives of what I've been up to, I'd go through Google and it's basically any article I've been in, any appearance I've had, any radio work, any event I've spoken at or upcoming will be there. But I would say get in touch with my LinkedIn. If people look at my Instagram, it's Meg underscore Southcombe. I have a LinkedIn tree 
there in my bio. And if you hit that, it'll actually take you to our story that's been published. My LinkedIn's on there. My email is also attached down the bottom. And then it's also got a few, I guess, of my favorite pieces I've done with some news corporations. So I have like some ABC stuff. And then I have also a link that goes to our Where There's a Will page, which is another organization that I said I do lots of work with there. So that is how you can find me. It sounds very random, but if you're ever in Newcastle, come into the Happy Wombat. So that's actually where I work and a lot of people do that and I can make you a coffee or pour you a beer, whatever you would like to do. And I'm always up for a chat. So definitely like come on into work, but yeah, no LinkedIn and give me an email or shoot me a message on there. Berg, what a pleasure it's been to have this conversation with you today. We love to finish every podcast with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. Like, you know, the laugh that you get in your belly that you can't stop that's super contagious? Yes, I do. <laughs> I would probably have to say, as much as my mum and dad do make me laugh a lot, it's going to have to be my friends. So Abby and I met this year on college. Sorry, last year on college, and we go on like really long walks. We actually walked from Stockton to Barubi Beach, which was like 30Ks on sand. So it took us like hours. And I would just say the amount of stuff we talk on those walks, like the amount of crap we actually talk, it just makes me laugh so much to the point, like, you know, when your face hurts too, like we'll be walking along and I'll be like, Abby, my face is hurting so much. So it's going to be, it's things that make my belly laugh is just moments with my family. That is what makes me laugh. And moments with my friends that are just like, we're having those conversations where it is like, what the hell, like that is so random. But I guess because we've all experienced it, we just laugh and we think, oh, that was so embarrassing. But if we always say like, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. So we'll just keep laughing about it for now. So definitely like combos with my friends, like especially Abby, those long walks, that is what makes my belly laugh. Thank you so much for finding the time in your busy, 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 busy <laughs> bumblebee schedule. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I just really hope, I guess, people listen to this and go, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and just reach out. And like I said, ride the waves and and start to put yourself first. Like just pretend you're a plant. That there you go. There's another. Just pretend you're a plant. Like put yourself first. Quote <laughs> of the day. <laughs> pretend you're a plant and just put yourself first. Yep. Yeah. What can I do to nurture and love this plant so that the leaves start to turn green, and they start to lift up, it starts to look healthy. You know, it's such a great analogy. It is, and it's so simple, but for some reason we overcomplicate it. So be a plant. And there you have it. An unfiltered and heartfelt conversation with the incredible Meg. Her story reminds us of the importance of understanding, empathy, and the power of opening up about our struggles. And as we wrap up this episode, I want to leave you all with a call to action. Spring is the time for renewal, growth, and transformation. So as you go about your day today, take a moment to think about what will your movement look like this spring? What positive change can you bring into your world? Whether that be a personal goal, a community project, or signing up at one of your local gyms, let's all commit to this today. Remember, the path to change begins with a single step. Don't let hesitation hold you back. Take the step today and start working on your plan. And if Meg's story resonated with you or sparked a need for connection, reach out to those around you. We're all in this world together and your well-being matters. 
Thank you for taking part in this conversation and for your time and empathy. And stay strong, stay kind, and keep moving. And until next time, have a great week, guys. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.